0: Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9:30 a.m. or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. So we come from a very diverse background. Because of that, we we bring a lot of strengths because we have different experiences through life, through religion, through the way that we were educated. But also the problem is, since we are so diverse, we also bring a lot of baggage and, and difficulties of, of how we've been taught or how we, we understand certain things. So there was this desire for us as a leadership team to kind of bring us back once a month at the beginning of each month to our doctrinal statements, things that hopefully everyone who has joined as a member have uh, you know, at some point gone through themselves and and have agreed upon, uh, maybe not necessarily understanding them in totality, but being able to back it and say, yes, I stand behind this with the rest of the body. So what we've tried to do each month is to uh, take that first Sunday and dive into one of those doctrinal statements. Last chance I had to speak, we were looking at... uh, uh, the doctrine of man. Um, this time, we're going to walk through the future events, um, and and it really is like the doctrine in our beliefs. It's it's one of those foundational, really really important things that we really need unity with. Uh, we may we may see a difference in how we discipline our kids. We may see a difference in in some of the entertainment that we you know let into our house or let into our eyes and ears, but. But our, our beliefs, our doctrine, that is something we must be unified in. And now we've reached that end of that journey. It's almost the end of the year. We're going to have a couple weeks of the Advent series uh, to close out this year. And uh, we'll see what God has for us uh, next year. So let's go ahead and read the statement that we have. Uh, it, so this is the future events, okay, so the end times, future events. We believe that Jesus Christ will bodily return to earth, remove his bride, the church, judge the world, and rule on earth for a thousand years before the final judgment that precedes his eternal rule. And then, if you look online, we, we, we dive a little deeper with a little more details to those doctrinal statements, so then it continues, as such... The church awaits the imminent, any-moment return of Christ. At the resurrection, the souls of those who have died will be reunited with their bodies in preparation for eternity. Jesus Christ will reward believers at the judgment seat of Christ for their actions after salvation. And God will condemn those who have rejected Christ to eternal separation from his presence in hell and will reward believers with eternal bliss in heaven with him. Now, I feel like before we really dig a little deeper into this, what what we should do is kind of go back to the beginning a little bit. Uh, You know, there are some that would say there's never really a good time to, to study eschatology, and then there's others on the extreme other end that, like, they're obsessed with it. Like, they can't get away from it, even to the point where they They want to figure it all out. And so they start making predictions for when it's going to happen. Um, uh, And and so my opinion is probably Christmas time is one of the best times to look at eschatology. Because for me, I see uh, the birth of Christ as like right in the middle of God's great big story. And as we celebrate this time of year as believers, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, There's really no better time to look at what's going to happen in the end because that really was such a critical part and a telling uh, event uh, as far as prophecies go that ties right into the end times. So it's a time when God's children celebrate that critical part. And that being said, let's go back to the beginning, bring everyone up to speed. If you're a visitor here, um, you're, you're in for a treat. I know you probably don't feel that way, but you are. Uh, We're we're going to walk through God's entire gospel in the next few minutes, just like you haven't missed a thing, okay? So we're going to catch up to speed. And and so today is a day when you finally get that answer to, uh, you know, what is the meaning of life? So I'm sure you didn't come expecting that, but here it is, okay? So the gospel. The first thing we want to talk about when we talk about the gospel is God. God has always been, He's always been holy. He's always been omniscient, so he, he's, he's all-knowing, always. He's always been omnipotent, so he's always been all-powerful. He's always been loving. He's always been just. Everything that God is, he always has been, even before time. But in the beginning of time, we, we see because of Scripture that God created everything. And we believe that he created everything through sudden creationism. So he created the universe and everything within it in six literal 24-hour days. The beginning of the gospel is that God created the heavens and the earth. Everything starts from that point. And like an arrow fired from a badly aimed bow, if we get that point wrong, then everything else that follows will be wrong too. If you believe that you are an accident and you just happen to come out of something or come out of nothing, for that matter, um, that is going to affect the way you view and think about everything else in life. So for us, we must start there. The creation story in Genesis expands in both scope and importance with each new day. So as we look at Genesis and we walk through the creation events in those days, we see first the creation of light, then the sea. Then land, then the moon and the sun, then birds, fishes, animals. And then at the very pinnacle of God's creating work, man and woman. Which brings us to the next part of the gospel. So we start with God, then we move on to man. In Genesis 126, we we read the word then, and, and what it's doing is it sets apart the creation of man from everything else. So it makes it unique. And God says, let us make. And from the very beginning, we see God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Comforter known as the Holy Spirit working together to create man. A unique being created in God's own image. That word there in image in, in the Hebrew is, is mean, it gives the meaning of copy or the idea of representation. I know when we talked about um, the doctrine of man, I had my son come up, Shiloh, and he's, he's, he's been made in my image. He's, he's a reflection, a representation of me, not just in name, but also in physical stature. Uh, fortunately for him, he represents mommy much better. Uh, but, but he's a representation. We are representations of God himself. We have been made in his image. But the created man chose to sin against the creator, rejecting God's will and separating mankind from the creator because his holiness could not fellowship with sin. This created a problem. A problem that man could never provide a solution for. So in steps the next part of the gospel, Christ. We start with God and his creation of man. Man sins and breaks that fellowship and relationship he had with With God, in steps Christ. Miraculously born of the Spirit through Mary, not of man. Fully God, yet truly human. Jesus Christ came into this world as a perfect representation, a second Adam, if you will. He was called Emmanuel. That literally means God with us. He was one without sin that truly became a substitute for mankind to satisfy God's wrath that must be poured out against sin. He was born on earth. He lived a life without sin. Yet, in every respect has been tempted as we willingly became the perfect substitutionary sacrifice and laid down his life in our place in my place, in your place. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So here we are in the gospel. God, man, Christ. And really in the end it begs of us. It begs of us a response. How do you respond to this story? that we've been given. Romans 3:21 through 24 says, "But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift" through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's the faith that we have paired with the grace that God gives us through what Christ has done on the cross. God has graciously brought you here today to hear the story of his goodness and love. But just hearing it isn't enough. You must respond. So I ask you, Will you or have you placed your faith in Christ? Are you putting your faith and trust and hope in something else, in someone else? Have you repented and turned away from your sins and turned toward him with your life? That is the gospel. And that was just my introduction. So let's move on to the message. So the the big thing that I really, really want to get across through all the different topics and subjects that we're going to walk through is the fact, the surety that his will will be done. No matter the power you have, your will, your desires, whatever it may be, God's will will be done. If we look at Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10. The studying that I've done with this, the, I've just gone back continually to Isaiah, which has surprised me because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of time spent in like First Corinthians and Revelation and, and in some of the, the key texts that some of us have probably heard for a long time. But going back to Isaiah, it's just, man, I, I'm convinced over and over I need to spend more time in that book. But as we look at Isaiah 46, specifically verses 8 through 10, it says, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Only God can say that, and only God can fulfill that. He is all-powerful and all-knowing, and His will will be done. So let's take a look at at exactly what what are we talking about? What are some of those things that are going to be done? So when we we jump back to our our doctrinal statement of the future events, we see we believe that Jesus Christ will bodily return to earth, okay? So physically, he will come back to earth. So what did this scene look like when, when Christ was last on earth? Does anyone remember that moment? It's in Acts, first chapter. I can't believe he just asked us to interact with him. So it's in Acts, Acts 1, 6 through 11. Let me read it to you. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And it's funny as you read that and you think about the conversations that that Christ had with his disciples, and they're continually thinking, oh, this is the Messiah. You know, they're looking at the prophecy that a lot of them have probably known since they were young, and they're thinking, he's finally come. He's here to overthrow Rome. He's here to rescue us, and we're going to be amazing because he's with us. And and what just happened? He, He just gave his life on the cross. They witnessed some miraculous events He's come back after dying, and they're like, you know, do we get to destroy Rome now? So at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons. Don't worry about when, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So let's take a look at Christ's physical return. So again, and, and this is, hopefully this is my tendency, but it's very like scripture heavy. So don't feel like you have to go to every single passage. Um, I'm going to read a lot of them for you, but you're welcome to try and turn them or... Uh, Swipe there or however you get to the, the verses. So uh, Christ's physical return in Acts 1, 6 through 11. It's kind of the main, main text there. But we're going to look at Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eager, eagerly waiting for him. Christ's second coming will happen in two phases. When I look at Scripture, this is, uh, this is what I've come to understand. It'll happen in two phases. Number one, his return in the clouds to greet resurrected and raptured saints prior to the seven-year tribulation. That's the first way, in the clouds. And also number two, a physical landing on earth that marks the end of this age which is also referred to as Daniel's 70th week, and triggers the beginning of his 1,000-year reign on this earth. And we're going we're to dive a little deeper into some of these things in the next couple minutes. But I want to ask you this because uh, I had to ask myself this question, but have you ever noticed that the second coming of Christ was only really focused on or only announced in the New Testament? The Old Testament dealt mainly with Christ as Israel's Messiah. So, so his first coming to earth and, and becoming that perfect substitutionary sac- sacrifice for us. That was like the main focus. And in Luke 19, uh, Christ is he's given this parable and he, he describes himself in this parable as one that would receive for himself a kingdom so with his finished work on the cross, he, he, would, he would receive for himself a kingdom and then return later to rule it. So even back then, as he's given this parable of himself, he's talking about this aspect that uh, he'll, he'll be here one time, but then he will also return again later. And in Acts 3.18, as Peter's talking, he told us that Christ fulfilled the prophecies of his suffering through his death. So he, 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 Christ will never again suffer He has fulfilled that part. And then in verses 20 through 21, he tells us that Christ has temporarily returned to heaven, but will come again to restore all things. So at some point, he will return. So let's go back to the future events. We believe that Jesus Christ will bodily return to earth, remove his bride, the church. So Christ will return, but also he will remove the church. So church's physical removal. That's the second part of our doctrinal statement. Church's physical removal. in 1st You'll see there, 1 uh, Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. That says, But we do not want you to be, uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he's trying to encourage them, when you, when you think about death, let me share with you some key things that you need to know about death. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will, bring, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, or those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, Will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, in this context, in this conversation that he's having with with the church that he has written to, he's trying to tell them, death is not the end for believers. And in fact, there are three parts to the church's physical removal. So let's, let's take a look at those parts. The first part is for the dead. Resurrection of the body and union with the soul. Resurrection of the body. And union with the soul. And those are the verses that we just read. So we know that death, especially when we experience it very close to us, it's, it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to talk about. It's a, it's a difficult subject. But we must consider it in order to better understand these events and understand God's plans. Most humans know, even non-believers, most humans know and understand that death is inevitable. The Bible tells us that the primary meaning of death is separation. It's interesting when you look specifically at death, the physical death. Genesis 35.18 described Rachel's death as the separating of her soul from her physical body. Considering all of Solomon's wisdom and all of the experience that he observed in life, in his writing in Ecclesiastes 12.7, he says, And the dust, meaning our bodies, returns to the earth as it was. If you think back, when man was originally created out of the dust. So the bodies will return as it was, and the spirit, or our soul, returns to God who gave it. And in James 2.26, it says, The body, apart from the spirit, is dead. So over and over again, when the Bible talks about death, it's talking about the separation of the soul from the body. In the resurrection, we see the work of the Holy Spirit as the agent by which every dead believer's body will be resurrected from the grave. And we know this through Romans 8.11. In Romans 8.11, it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit has this is this acting agent that will help resurrect our physical bodies. Now the first resurrection, okay? The first resurrection is who? Christ himself. Okay, the first resurrection is Christ himself. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 22 to 24, it actually lays out three resurrections. I I don't think I've ever noticed this before. So um, in in these verses, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So because of death, because of Adam, sorry, sin has brought death. Because of Christ and his resurrection, all can be made alive. But each in his own order. So he's going to lay this out for us. Okay? Christ. The first fruits. That means Christ was the first example of what resurrection is. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So That's the second one. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. We're going to look at those three. In the second phase, 1 Thessalonians 4:13 to 18 that we read earlier, it tells it tells us that God will through Jesus bring the souls of the dead believers to be united with their bodies. Okay, that physical death is going to be undone with delivering our souls that God is holding to the dead bodies that we have. There will be a resurrection of those dead bodies rejoined with those souls. In Philippians 3:20 20 through 21, it tells us that Jesus will transform our earthly bodies into a better And glorious body like his. And then later in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 35 through 49, Paul provides more details of those glorified bodies, and we don't have time to uh, dig into those. So, this is the resurrection of the saints. Next, we want to look at what is typically called or, or known as the rapture. So, those that are alive. So, the rapture of body and soul. So, we read the verses, 1 Thessalonians 4. It also tells us that after the dead souls and bodies of believers are reunited, the rapture of believers that are alive will occur. So those that have died, their corruptible bodies will be united with their souls and then be made glorified. Those that are still alive will then be raptured with those that have been reunited with their souls. Revelation 3:10 says, "Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth." So he will remove from the present the living body of Christ in in the church prior to the seven-year tribulation. So we see the dead and the alive being removed from earth for a period of time. But there's also a third mention which is the future. So, the future, the resurrection of tribulation saints in Revelation 20, verse 4. That says, I, John, so as he's writing what he is seeing, he's relaying it to us. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ. For a thousand years. So, speaking of that thousand year reign, the next part of our doctrinal statement says We believe that Jesus Christ will bodily return to earth, remove his bride, the church, and judge the world and rule on earth for a thousand years. So, we've already touched on some of the texts that talk about this, but looking at Christ's millennial reign. Now, when you spend time digging into this, it's, it can get very complicated and difficult to try and piece all the time, fri- time frames together. But there are some very specific passages that seem to clearly lay out the order of events. Uh, what I've come to understand with the millennial reign is that it will take place after the seven-year tribulation and prior to the eternal age to come. So Christ comes in the cloud. He doesn't quite... Come to earth, but he comes in the clouds, brings those that are, are saved on earth and alive with him, and he also brings those that have died and their bodies, and they get united with him, and then begins this period of tribulation. At the end of that, Christ then reigns for a thousand years. This is important because back in Genesis 1:26 through 26-27, when God says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God's original intention was for mankind to do that, but we couldn't. We messed it up. We sinned. And so now, Christ, for this thousand years, will come and reign and fulfill that himself. But we also see that. Satan is bound at this time, so he is restricted. Revelation 20, 1 through 3 tells us that um, uh, John says, "...I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and drew him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer." until the thousand years were ended. And that is during Christ's reign, the millennial reign. Let's keep moving. So we go back to the future events. Uh, the, The final statement we have is the final judgment that precedes his eternal rule. So we have the thousand year and then the final judgment that precedes his eternal rule. So let's look at the last point, which is Christ's eternal reign. Christ's eternal reign. In the text we have Revelation 21, 1 through 5, it said John again, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This takes place in a couple of phases like, like some of the other events. So the first one we see is eternal judgment. And that's the judgment seat. We see in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5. Language that talks about this judgment seat. The understanding of it comes from like, a, like an athletic um, uh, realm or, or even a, like a law giving realm. And what they had was what was called the Bema seat. And I know some of us have, have heard this term before. The Bema seat. And what it was was an elevated seat. So in the athletic realm, it would be that one area where at the end of an event, everyone could look up to this individual that was sitting on the Bema seat, and they would be the ones that are giving out all the awards and the recognitions for the accomplishments that had happened. And just like that, in the the legal realm, there's also this Bema seat where that judge would sit up there and, and pass down, pass down the judgments, So based on these texts, the judgment seat is reserved for believers only. This event is for believers only. In 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15, it tells us that our works will be tested by fire, and the works that are done in the power of the Holy Spirit that brought glory to God will be disclosed, while the works that were worthless and brought no honor to God Will be destroyed. First Corinthians four five even goes so far as to say that even our motives behind the works will be revealed. So, what kind of loss that text talks about the the um, we'll, we'll experience loss as a result of this? What kind of loss will that be? Now we know that salvation is not in question. Okay. When you look at the text, Paul says specifically, though he himself will be saved. So he's saying that is not a problem. Salvation is not a problem. That's not an issue. But Scripture elsewhere states, and and it also states elsewhere, that um, uh, we are no longer under eternal condemnation. So perhaps this loss is a reference to our realization. So our loss will be our realization of the worthlessness and waste of our deeds that it were done without God's glory in view. So we have that eternal judgment, the judgment seat. And we also have an eternal separation that we see here in the, in, in the future events. And that eternal separation, that is for those who are not believers. It's typically known as the great white throne judgment. Okay, so the, and this comes after God's thousand-year reign, the great white throne judgment. And in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, uh, John describes this scene. And it, it, it's going to be, I'm sure he did the best he could with his language that he's trying to, you know, on a human level, describe what he was witnessing. Uh, in 11 through 15, but he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and he who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. They couldn't hide anywhere. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead. So where people are Prior to this event, after they die without Christ, according to what they had done, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this, in this text, is that, that fourth and final resurrection that we see, and it's the resurrection of those that are not believers, Now, we know that sin can have no no opportunity, no association with God. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. We talked about the physical death earlier, the separation of the soul and the body. So, although physically alive, they're spiritually separated from God. We see this in Psalm 51 and 5. Because we have inherited Adam's sin and it has been imputed or credited to us, Through our natural birth process, we are born separated from God. Again, Romans 5.12, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And I know historically it's been focused on hell being like this place of torment, and just, um, you know, anguish and memories of what could have been, and, and what you should have done, and things, but... I'm telling you right now, the worst thing about hell and the lake of fire as hell gets thrown into the lake of fire is that separation from the mercy of God and the presence of God, the one who created us. That is the worst thing. And then the third thing about Christ's eternal reign, eternal glorification, life in heaven. And we read Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And it ended talking about, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Have you ever realized that God did not create man to naturally die? That was not his original intention. In fact, he told Adam, avoid that tree of life and death, the fruit of life and death. Do not eat of that. His intention was not to have the natural death. His intention was to spend all eternity with, in, in fellowship with himself. So you think of that, the, internal, uh, eternal, um, the eternal life in heaven. Glorification, what is that like? And, and one thing that came to my mind was um, what it's like to read a passage of scripture for a second, third, even a fourth time and still learn something from it. Has anyone done that? Have you read a familiar passage, or something jumped out at you, or somebody else was preaching it, and they said this, and you're like, like Ray, whoa. You know, I've never realized that before. Um, I think that's what heaven's going to be like as we spend, like, day after day, year after year, thousands of years after thousands of years. We're just continually going to be amazed and just in awe of God. Never ending. Jonathan Edwards once said in a sermon titled Heaven, a World of Love Our earthly soul had only a little spark of divine love in it. Okay, so here on earth, in heaven shall be, as it were, turned into a bright and ardent flame like the sun in its fullest brightness when it has no spot upon it. So let's go back. So again, the one main thing I really want everyone to take away from this is that his will will be done. And when we look at Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, and it talks about how, you know, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things. Not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. One thing that came to mind for me was F.F. F. Bruce, in his work, the New Testament development of the Old Testament, uh, he summarized this imagery of Jesus resting on the throne. This is, this is how he explained it, and I think it's just so fantastic. There's no way I could say it better, so I'm just going to quote him, give him credit, and move on from there. In Jesus, the promise is confirmed. The covenant is vindicated. Salvation is brought near. Sacred history has reached its climax. The perfect sacrifice has been offered and accepted. The great priest over the household of God has taken his seat at God's right hand. The prophet like Moses has been raised up. The son of David reigns. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated The Son of Man has received dominion from the ancient of days. The servant of the Lord, having been smitten to death for his people's transgressions and borne the sin of many, has accomplished the divine purpose, has seen light after the travail of his soul, and has now exalted and extolled and be made very high. I'll wrap this up in a similar fashion as Paul, because he was pretty good at it. And he ended his eschatological discourse to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58, by saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Pay attention. This is a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word you were not in any way obligated to give us the Bible. In your perfect plan you have chosen to give us the Bible. It has endured time. It will endure. It is just a representation though of the perfect word of God and that word of God is the Son and the Son has accomplished all of this for us. May we as believers strive to live our life in a manner that brings glory to you, not for rewards, because anything we do get, we're still gonna lay down at your feet, but because we love you, because you have first loved us. In your name, we praise and pray, amen.